You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Re-radicalizing empowerment in neoliberal institutions was delivered by Sarah Rushing, a political theorist from the University of Montana. This lecture took place on February 17th in Prune Lecture Hall at Amherst College. Thank you. I'm not going to use the microphone, so if you have trouble hearing me, let me know. But I'm generally regarded as loud, so I don't think that would be a problem. Thank you to Leah and to all the people who worked together to help get me out here. And I want to say a really special thank you to my undergraduate advisor, Dr. Stephen Ellenberg, who is largely responsible, maybe entirely responsible for me standing here today. Uh, with just three little words, he changed the course of my life, and those words were, law school, really? <laughs> <laughs> and he convinced me that if you're going to apply to law school, just think about applying to a few PhD programs, too, and I did, and, and during the course of that process, I learned what law school involves and why I didn't want to go there, uh, and, and I ended up in a PhD program, which really has um, strongly changed where I go and how often I have to wear pantyhose. <laughs> so, so thank you. So I'm really pleased to have him here. Uh, I have put a little bit, in the, the teacher in me has put a little bit of an outline on the board um, just to kind of help you kind of track the travels of this talk uh, if you feel like you might be getting a little bit lost. And um, I will say then that I kind of talk across a project I'm working on. And um, so if you get lost, it's not you, it's me. And I can come back to anything that might lose you um, uh, at, at the end. So hopefully we'll have uh, ample time for, for question and discussion. Okay, so the title of my talk, as I think Leah said, is Re-Radicalizing Empowerment Within Neoliberal Institutions, Humility, Autonomy, and Citizenship. A title my partner recently told me was pretty jargony <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, and so what I want to do today is pull together some threads of recently published work and work in progress that's for my book, Comparative Humilities, Ethics, Embodiment, and Sites of Political Awakening. So I'm going to frame my comments around the structure of the book title, first talking about ethics, then leaving that together with embodiment, and finally raising the question of sites of political awakening. That's you know, roughly the structure you've got on the board. And by way of conclusion, I'll touch on one site that I don't plan to talk about in my book, but have spent, as Leah alluded to, the last few years just acutely thinking about my own institutional context, and so that site is the university. And I think this will open up some great discussion because uh, it's directly relevant to many issues that you all have been immersed in here in Amherst, too. So ethics. There is a current debate in my field, which is political theory, about what's been called the turn to ethics and political theory. And here, ethics is not understood in terms of the major traditions linked to Aristotle, Kant, or Mill, uh, but rather in terms of a focus on our shared human condition, on interpersonal relationships and responsibilities, uh, as well as affective experience and psychic dispositions, and the subject's relationship to norms. So it doesn't look like anything that's been going on in virtue ethics, deontological ethics, or consequentialist ethics, and yet there's a move to call uh, this turn an ethical turn uh, and really situate it in human relationality and responsiveness. And so in a nutshell, the debate about this turn to ethics is about whether in turning to ethics, theorists like Judith Butler and like William Connolly have effectively displaced politics or the political is the central question. So another way of saying that is that they've stopped putting conflict, common problems, and collective action, as well as authority, and particularly the state, front and center. And instead, they've decamped to a kind of narrow focus on politics as self-crafting, um, or on our shared fragilities, and on critical resistance to norms, and not the potential to create new worlds. So that's the critique. Um, so I think there has been something like a turn to ethics and political theory. I don't agree that it entails a turn away from politics or from questions about power and action. 
But I'm sympathetic to the critique, and I'm sympathetic to the risk identified in it, particularly when I'm teaching this material to my students, because I see how much they struggle with thinking structurally and thinking systemically and thinking historically. And so they find a certain ease in focusing on subjective experience, on individual moral dispositions, and on interpersonal obligations to each other. Um, and moreover, I see how in an increasingly neoliberalized culture, and I can say more about that uh, as we go, I will say more and I can say more at the end. I know this is sort of a new concept to some of you, neoliberalism. In an increasingly neoliberalized culture, my students come to take the personal as political, but not in the sense of the old feminist rallying cry. So there's a change there. So the feminist version of the personal is political was about taking those experiences, which had been treated as private and particular because they were about women and not humans, and building consciousness about how widely shared those experiences were, and arguing that they were public issues and that they deserve collective action and collective attention. In neoliberalism, not so much. In neoliberalism, if it can be understood, so here's my sort of like neoliberalism in a nutshell, um, understood as the logic of free market capitalism extended beyond the domain of economics to permeate traditionally non-economic spheres of human engagement, like the family, the church, the school, the hospital, social services. Uh, that's kind of the gist of when people talk about neoliberalism as a rationality, not just an economic system. And within this framework, Within this logic, the way the personal gets conceived of as political is that personal responsibility becomes the basic premise of politics. Uh, freedom, not justice and equality, becomes the central value. And a shrinking state with privatized services and deregulated markets is celebrated as enhancing individual freedom. So here, individual choice, not collective solutions, becomes the mark of a functional system. And the person morphs into the rational chooser or the consumer citizen who conducts herself responsibly by analyzing the costs and benefits of a particular individual choice and making good choices so she can build her human capital and compete in an increasingly entrepreneurial landscape. And I quote good choices because if you're a parent, you hear yourself all the time saying, make good choices. And you're like, oh gosh, training you to be little neoliberal consumer citizens, but I also want them to make good choices. So it's complex, right? Okay, so my point here in starting with these two different logics, that of feminism and that of neoliberal capitalism, is to admit that the relationship between the personal and the political can take many forms, and not all of them are emancipatory. Uh, some are actually very depoliticizing and atomizing. So I think those who work at the intersection of ethics and politics, among whom obviously I include myself, need to always be drawing out the way that work on the self in the form of ethical self-cultivation or self-crafting or lived bodily experience or interpersonal ethical encounters, um, those things that fail, that can potentially fail to register as public um, are inextricably bound up with systematic questions of, pow of power and action. So I think people who work at the intersection of politics and ethics have the burden of always having to show how does ethics relate to politics, how does politics relate to ethics, how are these not two distinct spheres but actually totally interdependent. And so for me, making that relationship between ethics and politics explicit has taken shape as the question of how subjectivity relates to citizenship as a practice. So I'm not interested in citizenship as a legal status, but as a practice, and a practice of imagining and describing and collectively building a better world, as well as critiquing and resisting the failures of the current one. So that's how I think of what citizenship is about. So I want to really defend focusing on ethical experience as important to thinking about politics. 
Uh, and I want to defend it because we all come to politics or to political or politicized spaces from somewhere. Uh, if citizenship is a practice, we bring different abilities, desires, and needs to that practice and to, to the communities that that practice builds and the collective action that the practice of citizenship informs. So I guess one way of thinking about the work I'm doing right now, which is kind of encapsulated in this interesting outline on the board, uh, is in terms of what I would provisionally call the implicit citizenship training we get in navigating certain contemporary neoliberal institutions. Um, sites that are not traditionally recognized as political spaces, but within which our subjectivity as agents cannot help but be formed, whether our subjectivity is formed as people who uh, are effective or those who are merely compliant or those who feel impotent. Um, and I'll come back in a few minutes to the sites I'm currently with, uh, interested in, particularly in, uh, within healthcare, but also education. So in my current project, there are two main ethical dispositions that anchor my analysis, humility and autonomy. And I know some of you have gotten to um, actually read um, some stuff I've written about this, and so some of this might be a little bit familiar, um, uh, so I'm gonna kind of nutshell it, but again, please push me uh, to go deeper after if I don't capture what you're interested in. So my broad conceptual claim is this. Our inherited concepts of humility and autonomy are lacking, and they need to be revitalized for contemporary democratic life. That's my big claim. So the, the dominant Western conception of humility comes to us from the Christian tradition, where it entails a degree of self-abnegation and obedience to a higher power, or an acceptance uh, that there but for God go I, or I'm nothing without the Lord. And in my project, I'm less concerned about whether that's the real or true conception of Christian humility, uh, because obviously in the Christian tradition there's quite a lot of variation. I'm more interested in how Christian humility has been delivered to us through modern political thought. So my article that I think some of you um, were daring enough to wade through, Comparative Humilities, has about two full pages of footnotes tracking humility's travels doctrinally through Christianity from 360 to 1660. And that is not territory I'm terribly comfortable in, but I felt the need to like document some of that, that life. The territory I'm much more comfortable in is the path that traveled through Machiavelli, Spinoza, Hume, Mill, Nietzsche, among others, where it got characterized, or some people would say caricatured, uh, as a disposition um, described, for example, by Hume as a monkish virtue, by Mill as a cramped and dwarfed virtue, a disposition that clouded our judgment for what Nietzsche calls an ascetic, a life-denying ideal. So that's how we, in, our, in Western political thought, have inherited humility from Christianity through modern political thought. And that's not a very attractive concept, if I do say so myself. So that's part of my critique. The dominant Western conception of autonomy comes to us from Kant and liberalism, though with vestiges of Greek self-mastery. And it connotes something like sovereignty over the self, and this is typically a masculine individual self, or man as Hobbes described him, having sprung fully formed from the earth like a mushroom. And this is the concept of man there. Uh, and here the focus is on a freedom established in not obeying, uh, but in giving the law or governing uh, myself. So why do I think these concepts are lacking? First of all, because they're both in some sense at odds with the foundational commitment of democratic life, which is collective self-determination. Second, because in these inherited forms, humility and autonomy are at odds with each other. And I think that democratic citizens actually need both humility and autonomy, and particularly as these dispositions are interwoven. And by interwoven, I mean interdependent. 
So as I put it in the chapter I have written already on humility, autonomy, and birth as a site of politics, and now I'm going to quote myself, quote, <laughs> humility needs autonomy, a realm of freedom we can identify and pursue despite never being truly independent. Without such autonomy in the form of supported self-direction that feminist philosophers have characterized as relational autonomy, humility would be merely a consolation for relative impotence. And autonomy needs humility because autonomy is not a one-time achievement, but an ongoing process, a project of claiming over and again our lives as our own. Autonomy is a practice that we must have the opportunity to engage in, and we might have that opportunity where we're perhaps least likely to look for it, if only we're attuned to seeing those opportunities and we value the undertaking. So humility needs autonomy, autonomy needs humility, and our traditional conceptions are not getting, them, getting us there. So I want to argue for conserving these ethical and political dispositions, um, but revitalizing them in a way that makes them uh, really clearly meaningful in contemporary democratic life. Okay, so that gets us to embodiment. All in favor of going on, say aye. <laughs> All right. Okay, so probably because of events in my own life, and again, the personal is political, I got really interested in thinking about how these concepts of humility and autonomy function in context of extreme bodily or psychic vulnerability. And specifically, as you see on the board, giving birth, navigating death, dealing with mental and physical illness, and grieving loss. And importantly, I see these experiences, um, particularly as they've taken shape within mainstream medical institutional contexts, as profoundly political experiences, but ones that we don't typically treat as such, and I would say at least not political scientists don't, but even in feminist theory, um, you're really hard pressed to find anyone writing about birth. Um, maybe um, a version of contemporary uh, birth politics, but not giving birth, right? And, uh, and so I find it really interesting. These are very political contexts that political scientists tend to ignore. So how are they political? Uh, these are contexts that are saturated with power, both in the sense of explicit rules and requirements or protocols within a hospital context that have to be enforced, but also in the sense of the disciplinary power that solicits us to become certain kinds of subjects of treatment once we enter the hospital. These are contexts defined by asymmetrical knowledge between the patient and the doctor, the insurance company, the lawyer, the technician, and I mean here both practical specialized knowledge about how these domains work and about how the body works, but also normative knowledge about what criteria define a good birth or a good death, etc. These are contexts that involve high stakes decision making, questions of the just distribution of resources, questions of accountability, as well as questions of agency and the effects of structural inequality, particularly regarding race, class, gender, and sexuality. And these are contexts we should recognize as sites of contestation over conflict, meaning, and values. So these are deeply political contexts, and often you only know that when you cross a line, for example, with a doctor, when you ask one too many questions, when you doubt the framework, suddenly you realize you're a bad subject, and the politics becomes very explicit. Often the politics is implicit, but sometimes it becomes very explicit. These are deeply political contexts. And then also these are contexts that given the contemporary risk control and efficiency maximizing framework so acute within neoliberal rationality, have taken on an intensely managerial, blame mitigating, metric or outcome obsessed approach where attention to process, the process of giving birth, the process of dying is treated as a quaint luxury of the few, usually the rich. 
Finally, though medical institutional contexts are increasingly technocratic and administrative, they are also permeated by what is treated as an empowering discourse of choice and control. These are non-democratic contexts, but ones that champion a certain notion of participation uh, that shapes up under this term choice and control. So probably like many of you, the very words choice and control fill me with a deep sense of comfort. <laughs> I want choice and control. Uh, and so that sounds uh, like something really desirable. And when I read about patient protections that are put in place, so the Patient Self-Determination Act, requirements of informed consent, emphasis on advanced directives, this of course sounds to me like progress. And it, and it is, it's sort of better than the alternative, right? Codifying uh, some notion of patient rights and the ideal of a cooperative, more egalitarian relationship between doctors and patients is a good thing. But extreme embodied vulnerability within a complex context like end-of-life decision-making or giving birth to a baby is not something that policies and procedures can manage away. So the recognition of the need to shift from an institutional ethos of beneficent paternalism to an ethos of patient self-determination is good, but it's much more complex than simply replacing an old, flawed framework with a new, empowering one. And let me take a step back and define these terms for a second. So beneficent paternalism, which is sort of the age-old medical framework where good doctors decide on and do what their authoritative knowledge tells them is best for the patient, and good patients are trusting, humbled before the medical expert, and passively treated. And then the patient self-determination, or the autonomy framework as it's called, where good doctors provide the patient with information and then respect their autonomy by leaving them to decide for themselves. And the good patient chooses freely, but only from the menu of already approved options uh, and willingly takes responsibility for the outcomes of those decisions. So those are these two sort of dominant medical frameworks. Uh, and and you know, at least one discourse says we've moved away from that old bad one and toward the new good one. Uh, but there are a couple issues I wanna draw your attention to here. First, it's important to think about how humility and autonomy are understood and function in these different approaches. So I'm gonna offer one example here from a particular um, focus in my project on death. Uh, and in the chapter on death and dying, I look at the way that planning for death has replaced preparing for death. And I focus particularly in this chapter on terminal illness where there is actually some time to make choices about how you die. So in many contexts, there's not that time, but most people don't die under those contexts. They die from long-term illness, and there actually is the opportunity to make some choices about how you die. And so I look at kind of what happens in that context. So the practical problem I take up uh, in that chapter is that we don't seem to be doing dying very well in the United States. Um, what people say about how they want to die is actually very different from how most people actually die. So something like 90% of people say they want to die at home, at peace or asleep, surrounded by loved ones, not an institution, medicated, tubed, scared on experimental life-extending treatments, consenting to heroic measures to buy more time. I always wonder like, if 90% of people want to die at home, surrounded by loved ones, like, what do the other 10% want? <laughs> and then I said that to my mom. She's like, put me on an iceberg and push me out to sea. And I was like, oh, you're one of the other 10%. I'm so glad we have this conversation. <laughs> I'm not really sure where to find an iceberg. Okay, we'll work on it. Okay, so, um, so that's what people say. They don't usually get that experience, and yet the planning logic that dominates most mainstream medical institutions all but supplants genuine attention to preparation. So where preparing has a deeply relational and psychological dimension, 
and expresses humility through its recognition that death is a fact of human life. Planning typically connotes more of a managerial, technocratic, or administrative impulse aimed at controlling and forestalling, if not ultimately avoiding death. Um, part of this cultural shift away from preparation and toward planning has been the lack of training doctors get uh, on providing end-of-life counsel. Um, so many doctors are just deeply uncomfortable with death and they see a patient's death as their own personal failure. Um, the better a doctor knows a patient, the more likely they are to significantly overestimate how long that patient will live or to believe that the patient will be the one to defy the odds and respond to treatment. So doctors are human, is kind of what that means. Um, dying people also frequently have no or limited training for dying. Dying is largely invisible in our society, and we seem to have mixed feelings about what constitutes a good death or even a well-managed death or even a not shameful death. Death itself is implicitly treated in the medical legal insurance policy nexus as shameful. Um, and I was going to say, if you ask me during the Q&A discussion, I might be persuaded to perform my little excerpt from Downton Abbey <laughs> about that, that drives this point home, although I'm not sure I actually have it with me, but uh, I could probably recreate it, where the dowager says, I can't believe you have the nerve to die in someone else's house. And, and it's a foreigner. She says, only a foreigner would do that. And I said, oh, you know, we can't control everything. She says, well, I hope we can control at least some things, especially where we die, which is ludicrous, right? I mean, it makes the point. Uh, death, she says, it's shameful. Right? Like, sorry. Okay. So, in contemporary, so there I did it. You don't have to ask me that. Okay. <laughs> so, there, in contemporary death culture, you have a context where neither mainstream medical practitioners nor dying people are dying experts. Uh, and yet, also, you have this context in which the dying are told over and over that they have choice and control. And uh, very few people experience dying as a remotely autonomous event. So this is a confusing context, right? So in the chapter on death, I'm really interested in how all of this um, technological change, policy constraints, discourses on life, medical education, human fear and denial, malpractice avoidance, the figure of doctor as God, the modern deference to patient as customer, the increasingly medical, the increasingly um, difficult challenge of even saying when a person is dying, which apparently is now quite hard uh, given all that medicine can do to prolong life. All of this implicates very complex understandings of humility and autonomy, and particularly has deep effects on when and how people are advised about and able tra to transition to hospice care. So that's the kind of big cultural question mark I'm interested in. We say we want hospice care, we say we want to die in a certain way, people transition to hospice care, uh, which is you know uh, end of life care focused on um, quality of life and managing symptoms, not prolonging life or curing disease. Uh, and we, um, we shift to hospice care in ways that are really out of step with what we say. So use of hospice care in the United States has been rising in the US over the past decades, but the median length of stay in hospice care is less than a week. So what that means is people don't move to hospice care until it's absolutely undeniable that they are about to die. And that's not really the best uh, way to be using hospice care. So to go back to my point about uh, the progress touted by the shift from beneficent to paternalism to patient self-determination, you take this major corporeal experience like dying, and there's just way too much going on to believe this simple narrative about how benevolent doctors used to treat humble patients, but now patients are autonomous and doctors are merely facilitating of their decisions. So that whole narrative about that shift doesn't hold up. So another way to put this is to say that the shift, though laudable, 
is always bound to be fraught and incomplete because the reality is that doctors often have to make decisions in the moment that do not allow for the patient to be treated as an autonomous agent charting their own course of treatment. Um, another point I want to draw your attention to in this kind of beneficent paternalism to patient self-determination, so a, a form of humility to a form of autonomy. Uh, so another point I want to draw your attention to here is that this shift even if complete, doesn't necessarily accomplish what it aims to accomplish. So the philosopher Honora O'Neill has shown with respect to uh, informed consent in particular, that patients perceive it as paying lip service to autonomy. And uh, she, she says they see it as creating a, a simulacrum of autonomy. It's not genuine autonomy. And at least one study has shown that as the discourse and practice of informed consent has gone up, trust in doctors goes down. So that is completely the opposite of what's intended. And if that's going on, then, how, then all this sort of um, talking about patient autonomy isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Um, finally, beneficent paternalism and self-determination are actually not mutually exclusive. And they can converge as a fascinating and troubling logic. Uh, recently, in their book, Disciplining the Poor, Sanford Strom, Joe Soss, and Richard Fording have painted a really stark picture of what they call neoliberal paternalism, uh, as it functions, in their case, in poverty governance. And what they make clear is how the autonomous chooser habituated to market rationality can be shaped and put to use so that one very effectively learns how to freely conduct oneself in ways that are compatible with and fortify the needs of institutions. Um, and I think this holds true uh, really clearly in healthcare as well. Uh, our freedom can be a, a way to mobilize us into um, uh, conducting ourselves responsibly, right? So to recap this part, uh, embodied vulnerability in mainstream medical institutions during major life events is complex, and the promise of greater autonomy that comes from supposedly ditching the humble patient of beneficent paternalism and embracing patient self-determination is not simple. Uh, the empowerment promised by the discourse of choice and control is alluring, but it's often elusive. And I would argue that uh, when empowerment is severed from concepts of power, equity, and community, as it tends to be in this framework, it's already highly problematic as a concept. Um, so broadly, I'm interested in how the forces at work in these moments of extreme bodily and psychic vulnerability inform our subjectivity and thus experiences through which we learn lessons uh, that have implications for our life as citizens, right? So, Again, this link between what happens uh, in the labor and delivery room and how we then conceive of ourselves as citizens. Um, in a diverse, pluralist, egalitarian, liberal democracy, that's ours in theory. Diverse, pluralist, liberal, egalitarian democracy. What we need to flourish, I would argue, are conditions for citizenship, including traits of citizenship. And I think the key ones that uh, I write about are self-knowledge, a desire for freedom, intellectual courage and curiosity, generosity towards self and others, openness to uncertainty, incredulity in the face of power, the will to persevere in our aspirations despite the inability to control everything on our own, and the ability to see relational interdependence as foundational and facilitating and not frustrating action. Those are the traits of citizenship we need. So when we enter the space of the clinic, when we enter the hospital, under what conditions are we likely to have experiences that bolster these traits of citizenship and our sense of ourselves as subjects? And under what conditions are we likely to emerge diminished or experience ourselves as very limited kinds of subjects of treatment, managed, administered, or governed in disorienting and ultimately disempowering ways, despite the compulsive repetition of the mantra of choice and control? So that's 
kind of my big question. I'm going to shift now to political waking, but I say I would say that as I've been writing about this and telling people what I'm writing about, they everyone has stories to offer me of someone they watched die, or someone they watched give birth, or their own birth, or their own navigating complex um, in institutions uh, when they dealt with illness, and coming out of that experience and saying. I don't know what just happened. I don't know why I just consented to that, right? So this sense of like, I'm an agentic person. I have plans. I, I charted my course and I just went in there and I don't know what happened to me. And it's really fascinating because this is not a minor experience for people. It's a deeply effective experience. Uh, and I find that, um, that really interesting. And so try to linking that to sort of how we then see ourselves as actors in the world, particularly in politics, is fascinating. Okay, so this gets us to sites of political awakening. So I want to start here with the idea of a political awakening. Uh, I noticed this word originally when I was reading the political theorist Bonnie Honig's 2010 article, Antigone's Two Laws, which offers one of the critiques of the turn to ethics and political theory that I mentioned at the outset. Uh, so in this text, in, um, Honig analyzes a scene from Michael Moore's movie Fahrenheit 9-11, where Lila Lipscomb, the mother of a son killed in the Iraq War, is headed to Washington to publicly mourn her loss and lay down her anger at the White House so that she can heal. And Honig describes Lipscomb as someone whose agency is undone by her loss. Right? So her grief has rendered her immobile as an agent. On her way to the White House, Lipscomb encounters a woman in Lafayette Park who is similarly grieving military losses, and they connect over their shared mortal vulnerability, their shared suffering, and the finitude of life. They're joined together initially by what Hanek calls a timeless, mourning-centered humanist ethics. Uh, but a moment later, another woman comes along and she starts to debate them on the details of their losses and their moral right to grieve. And Hanek writes that this effacement of Lipscomb's singular loss silences her, and it drives her away from this scene of political awakening, scene of potential political awakening. She leaves behind the ugly conflict, gives up her fledgling solidarity with the first woman she was talking to, and she turns toward the White House. She's out, right? So Hanek compares Lipscomb here to Cindy Sheehan, who is another high-profile American mother of a son killed in Iraq. Unlike Lipscomb, Sheehan does not dwell in mortalist humanism or in an ethics of shared fragility and grief, but rather is radicalized, or Hanek describes her as ignited by her loss. Um, she embraces agonistic struggle, she embraces the conflict of politics, and she rallies others together with her to stand against the state. Uh, Sheehan takes her personal loss and she makes it public and she makes it shared in explicitly political terms. She makes demands rather than lamentations. So that's how Hanek characterizes these two figures. So I found Hanek's idea of the site of potential political awakening to be really fascinating but lacking a theoretical account of what such an awakening required and ultimately what it entailed. So I, I love this term she uses, but she only uses the term once. So it didn't give me a lot to work with. But Jack Turner is a political theorist at the University of Washington, and he's a 1998 Amherst graduate. He gave his recent book the title Awakening to Race. And using Emerson, Thoreau, Douglas, Ellison, and Baldwin, Turner actually develops a theory of political awakening. So importantly, he made clear that awakening is ethical and political and existential, that it's an ongoing process of becoming attuned to the reality of power and its categories, to becoming conscious of one's identity and place, uh, of unleashing our emancipatory impulse and practicing freedom together with others so as to, as he puts it, deliver us to ourselves, 
Awakening starts, Turner tells us, at the level of the contextual bondage of the body as it is raced and gendered and sexed and classed. So located in history and in space in a way that we don't choose and we cannot will away. So this takes us back to where we started today, to the idea of the personal is political, and that ethics emerges from embodiment. It gets political when we articulate corporeal experience and psychic pain that might be rendered private as public and as problematic. Neoliberal institutions are very adept at refiguring the person as the individual, the political as the aggregate individual choice of rational actors, and empowerment as competitive advantage that comes with conducting self oneself well according to a system's logic. And I have recently told my students they are no longer able to use the term the individual. Individual can only be used in an adjective because I'm so sick of reading about the individual. Like, what's wrong with the word person? There used to be persons, remember? Okay, word to the wise. Okay, so neoliberal resistance thus tends to shape up as a negative customer satisfaction survey. So what is left of the citizen here and where in this picture is power? And how might a customer satisfaction survey actually undermine political awakenings? So to wrap up, I wanna suggest that we can resist that logic and re-radicalize empowerment by reconnecting with power with self-determination understood in terms of humility-informed relational autonomy, with solidarity, with the pivotal place and effect of bodies, which are front and center when we're talking about healthcare, but are relevant in how we navigate all institutional contexts, including the university. The university exists to educate us for citizenship, not just for jobs, or at least that used to be how we talked about it. But learning about citizenship is partly learning content. So it's partly learning history, ideas, structures, uh, democratic substance. But it's also learning to navigate the institutional context of the university as a community that operates according to certain assumptions, values, norms, identities, hierarchies, and goals. So to awaken our role as a citizen of the university, not a customer or even simply a member, often involves a visceral experience of how the institution is failing to live up to its ideals and thus failing to be a community. So the university is a site of potential political awakening where we can practice active citizenship. Again, if we see the opportunity and if we value the undertaking and if we're willing to risk ourselves by exposing and resisting norms and joining together with others to transform them. In Democracy Incorporated, the recently deceased and beloved political theorist Sheldon Wolin lays out how democratic activism is, quote, typically triggered by felt grievances, not initially by a yearning for participation. It is born, he tells us, of necessity, it is episodic, it is improvisational. He calls spontaneous democratic activism fugitive democracy. Like Turner, he suggests that such awakenings flow from embodied experience and take the form of an often loud no. But this requires subjects capable of saying no and not just filling out a negative customer satisfaction survey. And so I want to urge us to see opportunities to practice that resistant subjectivity in places like the labor and delivery room, like the ICU, the Veterans Administration, the psychiatric ward, and the college campus.